0: Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Chris McDaniel, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is a reporter who has a big head after being on (laughs) St. Louis on the air today. Jason Rosenbaum of the St. Louis Beacon. And?
1: Joe Manis of the St. Louis Beacon.
0: And joining us in studio is Democratic Representative? Uh, Mike Colonna. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Tell us a little bit about your district first. You mean where is it located? Where is it located?
1: (laughs) Well, the fact that he's a Democrat. We need to mention that since we switch off every week.
0: Yes, we do. We had had Jones on last week. um, And I'm sure that this week will be just as good of a show. Yes. Just as newsworthy. Just just as newsworthy. So tell us a little bit about the makeup of your district first.
2: Thanks, Chris. First off, hey, I wanted to thank you guys for letting me be here today. Chris, Joe, Jason, this is – Quite a privilege and an honor. I mean, I'm yes. just a lowly you state rep from on, St. Louis City, on. and I'll tell you what, you're really blowing my egos today. Um, you finally
0: made it big. You're on the really big Podcast.
2: And uh, some people will catch the reference. There's, there's even a little gold around maybe the microphone <laughs> and, and, and the headset here. But we spare uh, no expenses here at St. Louis
0: Public Radio.
2: So Chris, uh, I, I've been a state rep for the past uh, almost six years, and my district is smack dab right south central St. Louis City. Primarily, uh, the neighborhoods are Tower Grove South, The Hill, and Shaw. Now, I do go a little bit further north, say, into the 19th Ward. Uh, in fact, I tease folks and say, uh, you know those railroad tracks that are right south of Manchester? I uh, do. My district is the south side, the <laughs> other side of those tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I first got elected, uh, my district was a little bit different. I had some of Dutch town, but with redistricting and the need for city districts to grow— um, they expanded my district to the north over in the Shaw and to the west over on the hill. So uh, for me, that's kind of a really neat thing because, uh, yes, you guessed it, my name ends in a vowel. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, my mother's side of the family actually emigrated to the hill. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm second generation. So for me, it's a really neat thing to represent that neighborhood. Um, the other cool thing that I really like about my job is, uh, you know the question in St. Louis, where did you go to high school? I I didn't grow up in the city. I grew up in Jefferson County. You're a Jeffco boy. I I am. I am. Right here. (laughs) (laughs) What I like to tell folks, uh, I grew up in Arnold. So you went to what?
1: Fox. Fox? Yes, I'm a
2: public school kid and a big fan of public education. But, you know, I tell you, I feel very fortunate because my experience growing up in Jefferson County, I mean, we've always had conservative Democrats down there. So, I mean, it's the first campaign I ever worked for was for Bill McKenna. And it actually was a citizenship in the nation merit badge through the Boy Scouts. It required (laughs) us to do something political. So Bill McKenna was the Democratic rep from Arnold. I thought it would be cool to work on a campaign. And, you know, I forget which early 80s year it was. But, you know, once I got involved, uh, I was just thrilled. You know, and I figured, you know, you can make a difference. It doesn't matter where you grow up. It doesn't matter who your parents are. You know, if you're passionate, you care, you get involved, you can get elected and you can make a difference. Um, And, again, having grown up in Jefferson County, I feel so fortunate that my neighborhood has adopted me and allowed me to go down to Jeff City and represent them. Because, I mean, let's be real, my district in St. Louis City is extremely diverse. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the Hill has a reputation of being, you know, somewhat conservative, very Mm -hmm. large Catholic base. Um, Shaw, extremely progressive. Tower Grove, I tell you what, Tower Grove is a wonderful place, extremely diverse and extremely progressive. Um, so, I mean, it's, I have a broad base of constituents. Um, and again, I just feel fortunate to have the experience in Jeffco as a conservative Dem to contrast that with my city issues. And I think that translates into me being able to communicate better in Jefferson City with members on both sides of the aisles. I can argue either stance and even help some of my progressive Democrats understand perhaps the mindset of, say, a Representative Rorta or TJ McKenna.
1: Now, you're also a lawyer. Correct?
2: Yes. Graduated from St. Louis U in 1994. <laughs> and, uh, in I case, guess that was a great year. <laughs> That's what Bill, it was a great year.
1: Bill McKenna went to the Senate that year, didn't he? A wonderful he, year. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, but uh, for those of you that didn't know, you know, St. Louis University has moved their law school downtown. And we'll just give them a little plug. Uh, their grand opening is uh, tonight, I believe, and they're having a second ceremony next Friday. But just... What a great addition for downtown. And
3: I believe, like Eric Schmidt, you were went to undergrad at Truman, and I guess you got your law degree at St. Louis University. Are you part of, like, a super exclusive caucus because of that? Or or do you just wear <laughs> seersucker and that counts uh, enough? You know,
2: I, I like to say that uh, Senator Schmidt saw what a what a fine job that I did, and he wanted to follow in my footsteps by going to Truman and <laughs> then on to St. Louis <laughs> University. Um, but uh, don't forget uh, Scott Sifton, too. Yes. Senator Sifton That's has right. those... Truman roots as well. Although I think
3: he got his law degree at the University of Michigan, which is an excellent school, although probably not as good as St. Louis University, as you <laughs> ah, would probably argue. Have so. to argue for the hometown but, team. <laughs> so so I, I guess let's plunge straight into issues, I guess, because yeah. that's why we're here. Are we're here to talk about how great Pl-plung, Jeff Coe is. <laughs> plunge right into him, Jason. Yeah. Well, I think the issue that a lot of people in Missouri politics have been talking about for weeks is this potential override of House Bill 253, which is colloquially known as the tax cut bill. And we've had Republicans on, we've had Democrats on. We've made some news. We've made some news.
1: Or rather, our guests have made news. <laughs> yes. We've simply reported it. What's, yeah. kind of your,
3: what's kind of your perspective on this bill? I'm, I'm assuming since you voted no originally, you're probably a firm no on the
0: override. But what has kind of gone now, to your head? Now, if you head? were switching your position, that would, that would be some news but, for the yeah, show, too. And, <laughs> and
1: for our listeners, just so we know, all the focus is on the House. The assumption is that there's an override number in the Senate. So all the focus is on the House where you are. So
2: proceed. You guys know um, I did vote against this, and uh, I'm actually proud might not be the the right term, but I think the governor's done a great job at trying to communicate what's going on. Uh, first off, this this border war that we have with Kansas, I think, is inappropriate. You know, are we trying to race to the bottom to try and eliminate as many taxes as possible to cut back as many governmental services as possible? But I mean, everybody thinks fiscal responsibility is a good idea, but you know, fiscal responsibility means something different, I think, to me than it does to the majority party. The majority party thinks that fiscal responsibility means let's cut taxes at all costs. Because if you cut taxes at all costs, you're going to have to cut government services. You know, from my perspective, fiscal responsibility is let's make sure we have enough money coming in to do our jobs as legislators and to make sure that we have adequate government services. And with 253, it all boils down to education. I mean, we have a constitutional amendment that requires the state of Missouri to have a balanced budget. In order to do that, the governor has some withholding power. So the governor has told us if this $400 million tax decrease goes into effect, he's going to have to find $400 million somewhere in the budget to withhold to keep the budget balanced. And apparently that will come from education. Um, So it's it's not prudent for a fiscally responsible individual who's taken the oath to make sure that secondary and elementary education is funded properly to vote to override. I just think it's irresponsible.
1: Now, what do you think are the chances at this point? As, as our listeners should know, the vote was 103 to 51. It was 100 Republicans and three Democrats who voted for it. 51 voted against it, and there was a bunch of people who weren't around.
2: I think it's going to be tight. I think they're going to be counting numbers to the day before. Um, I, last week I think uh, Speaker Jones said on this show that he didn't think they'd be able to override but then the next day had a, a slightly different opinion but in the week between the speaker coming on your show and, and me being here today all you have to do is turn on a TV any station to see the commercials regarding please override the veto you know a small business needs it NFIB wants it curb in wasteful government spending Uh, The radio stations, any radio station you turn on, you can't can't flip the dial without listening to a commercial asking for the veto to be overridden. I know there's a lot of pressure being put on some of the moderates in the Republican caucus to vote to override. And, And the threat, quite frankly, is some type of a primary challenge that the argument is a real Republican would vote to override and not even ask questions because we're cutting taxes. But you've got good moderate Republicans that understand education needs to be funded. And if we're going to fund education to a level where we need to, we can't cut $400 million out of the budget.
3: Now, not to get too much in the weeds of vote counting, but there were three Republicans that voted against it and actually one, Nate Walker of Kirksville, who has publicly said that he's going to not override, although I guess some people say that it's not firm. But the point is since there's 109 – If one of those people vote not to override, the only way this bill gets passed is if a Democrat, you know, switches sides. Um, Ed Schieffer of Troy has already told me he's not overriding. Steve Hodges hasn't. Jeff Rorta of Jeffco is kind of on the fence. So my question is how much pressure is on people in your caucus to stick with the governor and not override this bill?
2: Before I hit that, I want to go back to Representative Walker for just a minute. I mean, you mentioned that he's publicly come out and said he's not going to vote to override. But I, I, what I wonder if, if your listeners know is that, you know, Representative Walker was actually in the House 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in the significance here, I think. Before is that, term limits. Be- before not just yeah. before term limits, but his experience, his training as as a rep 20 years ago is a heck of a lot different than what we experience today or how we're trained today. I mean, today, it's it's uber partisanship. It's it's crack the whip. It's it's caucus control. You know, 20 years ago, before term limits, I think elected representatives had a, a greater eye towards good long-term public policy and working together bipartisanly. You know, for example, if, you know, 20 years ago, if we were in a uh, tax cut border war with Kansas, I think... The approach that would have been taken is, okay, look, we've got to do something. But let's also realize that we have an obligation to do things like fund public education to make sure our highways aren't crumbling. So, you know, instead of taking you know, a meat cleaver and a hatchet to our, uh, our taxing mechanism, let's do something, you know, very incrementally and slowly that'll work. Today you don't see that. Um, today, with the influx of so much money into campaigns – yeah, again, the threat of a primary opponent to folks in either party is real. When somebody can write a check with six figures, that's real. Mm. But, Jason, to get back to your question of, you know, how much pressure uh, are our caucus members getting to sustain the veto? Um, there's been talk. Uh, there's no full court press because I think we know that but for those few conservative Democrats in swing districts and mm. the folks that voted for it to begin with, we're not going to have any defectors because mm-hmm. this, this for us, is a core issue. And the core issue isn't tax and spend. The core issue is fiscal responsibility and making sure that education is funded.
1: Now, how big is the fact that there's – well, there's two provisions in the bill that one would eliminate the exemption on prescription drugs as far as sales tax. So people would be now paying sales tax on all their prescription drugs, which they don't now – and also a provision that eliminates the existing sales tax exemption for textbooks. So mm-hmm. students who buy textbooks would have to uh, pay taxes on their purchases as well. Is that getting much play or are people even aware of it?
2: Folks are aware of it, but I think it's 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 a secondary issue. Most of the uh, of the concern of the talk has been about education funding. Okay. But, I mean, let's be real. I go out on a limb here. That's um, – a, a selected move that the governor chose to do. Um, the real hard fact is, you know, if, if the governor were to withhold $400 million from some other area, we're still gonna have a massive tax increase with our prescription drug benefits. Uh, and who's that gonna hurt? You know, who's that gonna hit the hardest? Our senior citizens, plain and simple. So you know, I'm, I'm a little bit frustrated that we haven't focused on that more because in my mind, you know, if we override the governor's veto, the message should be Representative so-and-so voted to raise taxes and voted to raise taxes on your retired mom and your retired dad. That's what the message should be.
3: Well, do you think if, for example, Representative Rorta decides to override it, do you think he'll get primaried in that Democratic Senate seat?
2: You know, I, I, I'm going to go out on a limb, and this is just Mike Colonna talking. It's not a party apparatus or a caucus member. Um, I think the Democrats in Jefferson County are solidly behind Representative mm-hmm. Rorta. Which which is a good thing because that allows him to do exactly what he's doing, and that is take the pulse of his district. Mm-hmm. I mean, on an issue like this, sure, he's got a core belief on on what's right and wrong or what he should or shouldn't do. But you know, Jefferson County has been so politically active over the past two cycles. I think he really wants to make sure that he does the best thing for his district. You know, and and one issue that I think comes into the mix is. You know what? What's the percentage of population of retired folks? Mm-hmm. You know what's the percentage of folks that receive, uh, you know, federal assistance for their prescription drugs? How many folks are on some type of a welfare and still have to buy pre- prescription drugs? You know, if it's going to hurt more of his folks than help, then he votes to sustain.
1: Now, one of the interesting things that I got from an interview, not yet posted, but um, scoop. <laughs> But with uh, Senator Claire McCaskill on a variety of issues. But we were talking about the tax cut uh, bill, and of course she did say she supported the governor's over Mm -hmm. sticking with his veto, and so she opposed an override. But her point was, her contention was that actually by passing the tax cut and having to... Uh, have less state revenues coming in from taxes, she said that it means that Missouri will be even more dependent on federal dollars as a percentage of the state budget, and that Missouri already is among uh, less than a dozen states that are the most dependent on federal dollars, and that it'll just make Missouri more dependent on federal dollars, and she wonders if the backers get that. Um, does that. Is that something that's just too arcane in the weeds, or is that something that might um, be used at some point
2: well I first off, I agree with the senator it 's simple math. I mean, if you reduce the amount of money that Missourians pay to the Missouri government and you keep our our federal dollars constant we 're going to have a greater proportion of our budget coming from federal dollars that 's again simple math but you know i think if if you look at some of the House districts that receive um, the highest percentage of federal dollars, those districts are districts that have the the highest Republican-performing indexes in the state. So there's the irony. The irony is, you know, our our friends in the majority party say, big bad federal government, we don't want your help, go away. But yet their districts are the ones that, well, suck up the greatest (laughs) amount of federal dollars. So, you know, I don't think the question is, is it too arcane of an issue? I, I think the question is, is it relevant and do they care? They don't. They don't. They want to bring home the bacon for their district, which is okay, Not a big deal. We all want to do that. But let's at least recognize the fact that that bacon is coming from the federal government and perhaps it's doing some good for the folks in your district.
3: So the the tax cut bill is kind of up in the air as far as whether it's going to get overridden. But a bill that seems to have a much better chance of getting overridden is the so-called Second Amendment Preservation Act, which has also been shorthand called the The gun gun nullification nullification bill, bill because of a provision that and I'm paraphrasing here because I don't have it in front of me, nullifies federal gun laws, actually makes it a misdemeanor for federal officials to enforce some of those gun laws.
1: Including the 1934 uh, uh, ban on machine guns.
3: So there are a lot of provisions in this bill. And as I'm writing an article about that on Monday, there are actually more provisions that could actually withstand a court challenge, hypothetically, depending on whether the court strikes down the whole bill or whether they let um, certain provisions stand. My question for you is: Why do you think that this bill, which seems to have some s- pretty significant structural issues, we could talk about the publication ban for for hours on this? Why do you think this has a better chance of getting overridden than the tax cut bill in your in your view?
2: Well, you look at the majority party, and again think about their core issues. I mean, this is a huge, huge core issue for them. Um. The gun lobby in Missouri has been very successful at, well, I guess, informing members of both parties uh, on what their priorities are. Um, and, and the folks that, you know, supported that bill, like uh, Representative Funder, Funderberg up in St. Charles County, um, for those folks like him, this is something sacred. I mean, it, it's, you know, if you go home and you say, you know, I love my wife, you know, I love my job, and I love my Second Amendment, <laughs> you know, for folks like Representative Funderbunk, that's absolutely true.
1: New slogan. <laughs> so I, but but so it's the, not a
2: game for them. I mean, for them, this is real. They want to make sure they, they, they believe that that Second Amendment mm. that says shall not be abridged means shall not be abridged. But do you think period. the gun
3: lobby is is, is actively pushing Nullifying federal law on a state level. I haven't really heard the NRA talk about that. I actually have a call into them now asking that. But is this something that came from a gun lobby push, or was this? There are several
1: other states Uh, that have. Yeah. Or is this kind of
3: organic that has just kind of come from the ether (laughs) or something?
2: You know, again, this is going to be my biased Democratic opinion here, but um, my thoughts are it's a combination of a couple things. Mm -hmm. One, you know, the Grand Old Party is very good at these wedge issues, and that's that's what this is. It's a wedge issue. You know, you come down to Tower Grove where, you know, gun violence has increased, and you ask my constituents, you know, do we want to relax gun control laws? Heck no. You know, you ask a law-abiding gun owner if they want to make it easier for convicted felons to have guns? Heck no. But I think what's happened is you have some folks that that push the wedge issues for a pure political position, and then you have folks like Representative who who truly believe in what he's doing, you combine those two folks, you put a bill together, and the next thing you know, you have an NRA-rated vote. So I, I think the, the important issue that by default occurs is what's your NRA, NRA rating? Mm-hmm. You know, if you're in a district in Pulaski County, it's probably pretty important. What do you mean you voted against a Second Amendment bill? So I, sometimes I think the, the actual issue of what's in that gun bill gets lost and the focus really becomes more of how do I keep my NRA rating
3: high? Do you think that's why some of your Democratic colleagues, they were there was an Associated Press article that focused purely on people from Jefferson County, people from outside, outstate Missouri who are, in, who are in Democratic caucus saying that they don't even believe this is constitutional, but they're going to vote for it anyways because of electoral reasons. Um, I'm sure you saw that article and Maybe you didn't see that article. Maybe you want to forget that article. But <laughs> what, what was kind of your reaction when you heard some of your colleagues say stuff like that?
2: Well, I'm glad you asked, Jason. <laughs> and um, you know, I, I let's let's you know throw the cat out here and say you know we're, we're, that ar- that article focused on Representative T.J. McKenna, mm-hmm. uh, who's from a conservative Jefferson County district. I think maybe it's a 50 percent DPI, maybe 52. He won right. by a very small
3: margin, right. so. under 100
2: votes. Yeah, um, but. You know, we, and by we, I mean, you know, you and I sitting here, folks that voted for term limits back in 1993, folks that voted to have unlimited campaign contributions, we created the mess that folks like Representative McKenna have been thrown into. I think it took more guts for him to say what he said than to say, oh, no, I'm going to vote to sustain the veto because, you know, principally it's the right thing to do. We have principle, and then we have practicality. Mm-hmm. All right, and, and for Representative McKenna to say, I've got to be practical here. My district really wants this. And if I want to come back and represent these people, i got to vote my district. That's what was lost in that article. Yeah. Know, the other thing that was lost is how much money would be poured into a campaign by the majority party if Representative McKenna's NRA rating went down Mm -hmm. because he voted against the gun bill. Once again, the issue of what's in the gun bill becomes irrelevant, and it's that NRA rating that takes top billing.
3: And I'm glad you mentioned that because when I was talking with Ed Schieffer about a different topic, I asked him point blank, are you voting for this tax cut bill because of your state Senate race? Because he's running for that Jolie Justice type seat. And not expecting him to say that, he basically said, Well, anybody who says that political considerations don't make a difference is being somewhat disingenuous to you. And that's why he said that's what partially influenced his vote on that bill, the gun bill, the foreign law bill, Agenda 21 bill, all those types of bills. Do you think that kind of plays into a lot of these people's thinking that they have to think about these, you know, expensive,
2: potentially nasty races to begin with? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I tell you, I got to take my hat off to Representative Schieffert. I mean, that's uh, he's absolutely correct. And he, he put it very succinctly. Um, you know, what's a little troubling to me is that Representative Schieffert is kind of a dying breed. Uh, I don't know if you caught the editorial that uh, Reuter wrote maybe a week or two ago. I did, ago. actually. Yeah, I actually talking did. about, you know, the I-70 Democrats The backwater, dirt road Republicans.
3: It was was a good use of metaphors, certainly. (laughs) You
2: know, and Representative Shefford is one of those conservative Democrats that is, I mean, he's an epitome of his district. Plain and simple, farming, you know, conservative Democratic values. But, you know, not only does he have a great opponent running against him, because, I mean, Representative Riddle is, she's sharp, uh, she's articulate, she cares. Um, The issue there is going to be money, Mm -hmm. you know, and and. You know, she's a great fundraiser, but, you know, the uh, Senate majority fund will dump a ton of money in there because they can take a six-figure check from somebody. You know, and we on the Democratic side of the aisle, while Representative Schieffer may be a better fit for that district, we're going to have trouble raising money for him. Mm-hmm. So
3: I guess I wanted to talk another about another issue we talked about beforehand, which I actually remember you talking about at a Lathrop Engage forum a few months ago. And that is this push to put sexual orientation and gender Gender identity identity. into the state's non-discrimination act. And this actually got a surprising amount of momentum in the last few minutes of the General Assembly when it was attached to another bill in the Senate, passed the Senate 19 to 11 with some very surprising people voting for it, and then it didn't end up getting a vote in in the House. So I I guess I wanted to ask you, you know— Kind of what you, your your participation has been with this issue, and where you see it going for the foreseeable future.
2: Well, Jason, here I, I thought you were going to give me a plug regarding my Daily Show appearance. Oh, where? Uh, what well, you did? Oh, I yeah, on the daily? I do remember <laughs> that. Yeah, a couple years ago, um, this issue came up on the floor, and uh, there was an interplay of words between myself and uh, Representative Wanda Brown. Representative Brown wanted to include gun owners in our non-discrimination clauses, Oh, yeah, I remember that. And, you know, I just kind of – I had one of my two or three moments where I just lost it on the floor. The next thing you know, The Daily Show was calling and they <laughs> filmed a clip. Um, I completely forgot
3: about that. That was – I do remember that, though, because <laughs> all reporters watch Comedy Central, I guess.
2: You know, and that, that's my 15 seconds of fame. But, um, you know, I think what you saw in the Senate at the end of session – has been accumulation of efforts over the past couple of years. Um, you know, we've had, this sounds completely goofy, but it's true, you know, a, a historic number of openly gay folks in the General Assembly over in the Senate in the Missouri House. And, you know, you, you hear the, the cliche of, you know, it, it, I didn't know a gay person. I met a gay person, and <laughs> oh, my God, you're okay. And, in fact, I'll tell you what, my first year down the General Assembly, I had that experience. Um, my roots, Jefferson County, conservative Democrat. So I can get along with those conservative Republicans. About a month and a half, two months in a session, the House lawyer calls me aside, and he says, hey, Mike, look, i got to talk to you for a minute. Some of my members, and what he meant by that were Republicans, because he was a retired farmer Republican representative. Goes, Some of my members have asked me to have a chat with you. And uh, I said, well, well, what about? And he goes, well... You know, you've been hanging out with them. You know, you've been socializing. been talking about policy. And uh, some of them are beginning to figure it out. And I said, figure what out? What? He goes, well, that you're gay. <laughs> and, Mike, they asked me to talk to you. So I'm thinking, okay, great. Here it comes. You know, I'm going to lose my committee post. I'm going to have my office out in the parking lot. But he goes, here's the deal. You know, they, they didn't know that you were gay. And, and some of the members are afraid that they may have said something inappropriate or wrong that may have hurt your feelings, and they're sorry about that. And, and now that they Whoa. know, they're going to That's be movement. a little bit more sensitive. No, it was extremely flattering, but that has been my experience in the General Assembly. And I think when you get back to the issue of discrimination against LGBT folks, um, first off, it's an education issue. That Yes, it does happen. And then the next step is, and here's how it can affect your brother, your sister, your niece, your nephew, your child. And, you know, what better lobbyist for an issue other than one of your colleagues? You know, we're not being paid by anybody to put an issue. The issues that are important to us are the issues that we push. And this Mm -hmm. is important to me because I I have represented folks over the years whose, uh, you know, job responsibilities have been taken away because they're openly gay. Um, The ironic part about all this is that Missouri is at a competitive disadvantage with other states when it comes to recruiting LGBT folks. If you think about Boeing, you think about BJC, WashU, highly competitive employers. But when you get to the question of, well, gee, one, will my partner have benefits? Right. And two, will I have protections against being fired from my orientation? When both answers are no, they don't come here. They go to California or they go to New York. And I don't care what you think about California California our New York's public policy, that's a qualified, good applicant that we lost because we haven't marched into the 21st century. And the the weird thing is, you know, you talk to folks one-on-one. You talk to the business lobby, the chamber. Your largest employers in the state, Kansas City, St. Louis, Springfield even, Columbia, individual members of the House and Senate when you talk to them, they all think it's a good idea and we need to move forward and do it but yet we don't so i think again what we saw in the senate was you know five or six years of education of relationship building of question and answering to do away with some of the stereotypes and some of the misconceptions and to focus on the real issue and the issue is discrimination and and once we reached that tipping point which we obviously did in the senate it's a beautiful thing now, You know, you send the bill over to the House with 15 minutes left in session and your floor leader deal and you're trying to figure out what do I bring up next. You know, you you look at your list of bills that came over. You ask yourself, what are priorities for my caucus? Let's do my caucus's priorities. We got time left over. Let's do something else. And I will tell you in the House Republican caucus, the the LGBT anti-discrimination bill, Mona, is not a priority. (laughs) So, you know, the wood tax credits those were a priority
3: is the reason why it's not a priority what's is, is there like this stated fear that it will cause more litigation because it seems like the effect of this would be if you are fired because of your sexual orientation you would be able to go in court and seek restitution in the legal system i mean i guess that's kind of the point of editing this but are they saying well we don't want more litigation or anything and maybe that could tie into what you wanted to talk about tort reform or something. Or is it the
1: social issue
2: stigma? Or is it a little bit of both? Um, I think it's a lot of bit of the social stigma, and it's the convenient excuse Mm -hmm. that this would promote litigation that, you know, Republican leadership hides behind. I mean, let's be real. The Republican caucus is is a top-down organization, and I I think it's public knowledge that sometimes the speaker and the floor leader bang heads, and... You know, the floor leader may be a little bit more, I hate to say progressive, because he's not progressive, but...
1: (laughs) He's going to be on here next week. He's
2: he's not as right-wing as our speaker, which is not good or bad, right or wrong. It's just reality.
1: Now, he denies that, just Um, so
2: you know. You know, you've been at this long enough. You know, all we have to do is go look at the voting record. Um, And, you know, again, the short of it is, I think, you know, Republican leadership has decided that they're just, they're not going to do this. And you can point... uh, Back to Representative Wyatt, you know, a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the day that he called his press conference and came out, the backstory to that is we were debating um, the school bullying bill, and he wanted to add Mona to the bill. Mm-hmm. And he went to leadership, told him what was going on. Now he's a, repu- yeah, a Republican. I'm sorry, Representative Wyatt. Listeners. Yes. He's yeah. a farmer representative from uh, Kirksville, Republican, who, after he won election, came out as a gay man. And part of his coming out process was his frustration with his party because once they found out what he was going to do on the floor, they would not recognize him to bring up his amendment. And the representative got so frustrated, he's like, fine, tell you what, I'm going to have a press conference. And one, I'm going to come out, and two, I'm going to tell you why because I couldn't <laughs> have my amendment debated. And it's, you know, it's – I think this is a generational thing. Um, a lot of the younger members in the Republican caucus uh, will publicly say, no, we need to do it. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the folks in charge say no. So I think, you know, term limits are bad, but maybe in this situation with, with new blood coming in every couple of years, I, I hope and pray it's just a matter of time before we accomplish this.
0: Well, Representative, I think, I think we'll have to cut it off there. We've been in here for, for 33 minutes. Almost as long as as our speaker <laughs> show last week. Well, thank thank you very much for joining us. Um, next week, as Joe alluded to earlier, we will have Representative Deal on the show.
1: John Deal, yes, <clears throat> Republican, St. Louis County, and he's uh, the number two guy in the House and hopes to be the new number one when the vote when the, when they have the vote because right. the Republicans elect their new speaker a year in advance.
0: And it looks like we'll have that a little bit earlier in the week. Um, So be on the lookout for that. You can read all of my stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can read all of Joe and Jason's stories at stlbeacon.org. You can follow me on Twitter at cs CSMcDaniel. You can follow Jason on Twitter at – Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at – J
1: Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. Do
2: you have a Twitter account? That's what I was going to ask. Yes. Twitter confuses me. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Somebody set up an account for me, but you have a I My don't Sp- even know how to use it. <laughs> Do
0: you have, like, a MySpace you want to plug? Uh- I have a Facebook page. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> a we- a I figured out how account. to use Facebook. I don't know. Okay. Well, no, no Twitter account, but we'll be back next week. Until then, so long. So long.
2: So long.